Welcome to this episode of the podcast of the Champlain Society. Named after one of the great explorers, Samuel de Champlain, the Champlain Society is the sponsor of this series of podcasts on the documentary history of Canada. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today, we are going to explore some revealing letters between Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, and the Governor-General of Canada, Lord Lansdowne, at the time of the Northwest Rebellion in the mid-1880s. My guest today is Bill Wazer, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Saskatchewan. Bill, you've done some interesting research on Western settlement over a number of decades. Recently, you focused on pre-agricultural history of the Prairie West, and your books include Loyal Till Death, Indians in the Northwest Rebellion, which you co-authored with Blair Stonechild, as well as A World We Have Lost, Saskatchewan Before 1905. And for that book, you recently won the 2016 Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. You've also been a longtime member of the Champlain Society. Welcome. Well, after so many years of studying the settlement of Western Canada, what got you interested in the indigenous and fur trade history of the West before agriculture? Uh, well, Greg, I used to teach in the area. I used to offer uh, two half courses on the history of Western Canada. The first half course uh, dealt with the history of the region up to 1905 when Saskatchewan and Alberta were created. And then the other half course dealt with uh, 20th century prairie history. So I had taught in the area. But uh, what got me researching and writing in the area was actually a book I did on Saskatchewan for 2005. I did a centennial history of the province uh, for the uh, province's 2005 centennial. And it was suggested to me at the time after I completed that project, well, what about the front end of the story? What about the period before Saskatchewan became a province? And uh, I wasn't quite ready at the time to put my head back into a vice, put it that way, because writing a, uh, a synthesis is not uh, an easy project. You've got to uh, read widely and then distill the information uh, for a general audience. But um, I came back to it, and, uh, and that was the book, A World We Have Lost. And uh, just before that was Loyal to Death. So... Um, I've uh, looked back further than I normally do, and uh, it's been uh, really, let's put it this way, it's, it's changed me as an historian, and, and it's changed the things I, I thought I knew about Western Canadian history. Well, Bill, the whole issue of the relations between Indigenous groups, including the Métis, and the Government of Canada is at the heart of the letters between MacDonald and the Governor-General of Canada. Here is an excerpt from their exchange. It begins with the Governor-General saying, You regard the recent outbreak in the Northwest as a merely domestic trouble, which should not be elevated to the rank of rebellion. The outbreak was no doubt confined to our own territory and may therefore properly be described as a domestic trouble. But I am afraid we have all of us been doing what we could to elevate it to the rank of a rebellion 
with so much sweep that we cannot now reduce it to the rank of a common riot. If the movement had been at once stamped out by the Northwest Mounted Police, the case would have been different, but we were within a breath of an Indian war. Now, MacDonald was frank in his reply to the Governor General when he stated, and I quote, We have certainly made it assume large proportions in the public eye. This has been done, however, for our own purposes, and I think wisely done. Bill, what do these letters reveal about MacDonald, about his view of Canada and the people that are still the majority of the population in Western uh, Canada at that time. Yeah, it's an interesting exchange, and um, it's a little-known exchange. Uh, uh, people don't realize that John McDonald was Canada's longest-serving Indian Affairs Minister. At the same time he was Prime Minister, he wore two hacks, hats. So one part of his desk, or corner of his desk, he dealt with Indian Affairs. And that correspondence is from August 1885. The Northwest Rebellion is over. The Rebellion trials are going forward. And with the rebellion behind the McDonald at that point is now concerned with Western settlement and how the Northwest Rebellion might have affected Western settlement. Up to 1885, settlement was um, languishing. Uh, they expected uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of immigrants to come to Western Canada. They did not come. And MacDonald is now worried that because of the rebellion that uh, Western Canada will be seen as wild and woolly and that will further discourage immigration. So that's what he's up to in trying to downplay the rebellion. But he's got other purposes here that we need to explore today. So, Bill, what do these letters tell us about the rebellion of 1885, in particular the way the history of the rebellion has been taught in Canada? Well, what these letters reveal is that the rebellion was actually manipulated. And uh, through my research for a world we have lost and uh, loyal to death, uh, and, and in fact, this research uh, did extensive uh, did an extensive examination of John and McDonald's papers. There's a lot of correspondence there with regard to Indian affairs. Is that um, Indians were generally loyal in 1885? Yes, there was some sporadic, isolated incidents. But on the whole, the Indians of Western Canada, in particular the Cree, were loyal to the Crown. They did not want to be involved in the rebellion. They saw it as a Métis rebellion. They did not uh, believe that was the route to go. They believed that there should be peaceful renegotiation of the treaties. They looked to their own leaders and not Louis Riel. And yet the Canadian government deliberately uses on, on the apparent Indian involvement in the rebellion to portray them as rebels, and uh, by betraying them as rebels, uh, it can then take uh, very definitive steps against them. So, can you go a little bit further as to why MacDonald either invented or exaggerated what he uh, called an Indian uprising in Western Canada? Well, uh, quite simply, the federal government is frustrated. It cannot control Western Indians. It, it wants the Cree in particular to settle down on the reserves, to become farmers, uh, and to reduce their dependence on the government for assistance. The sad truth of the matter is that they didn't get the promised assistance uh, from the treaties, and what they did get uh, was minimal. And there, 
They're expecting Indians to make the transition from bison hunters to agriculturalists in, in a few short years. That time period has collapsed. If you're a newcomer to Western Canada and, and you fail on your homestead, it was canceled and you moved on. But uh, they're on these reserves. Uh, agriculture is not easy. During these years in the 1880s, it's failing and, and to a large degree, in part because they're not getting adequate support. Uh, Indians feel that the Canadian government is not living up to its treaty promises. They're talking about a treaty rights movement. And uh, what McDonald's trying to do here, and in particular other Indian affairs officials, is to deal with this, let's put it in quotation marks, this intransigence on the part of Indians, and it wants to crush Indian autonomy. So that's why he portrays them as rebels. So how did McDonald's spin on the Northwest Rebellion become part of the popular culture of Euro-Canadians at the time and since then? Well, what happens at the time is that, as, as evident from the letter you read by, uh, by Lansdowne, it was seen as a grand Indian and Métis alliance in 1885. They are rebelling against the Canadian government. That's how it's portrayed in 1885. They use that image to raise troops, particularly in Ontario, to go and crush this rebellion. It has since been picked up by authors. Uh, one of the most prominent was George Stanley in The Birth of Western Canada. And I found in the classroom that it's a very seductive interpretation. Indians were, quote, primitive. Indians were, quote, backward. Indians were, quote, less civilized. And they can't deal with change. And because they can't deal with change, Stanley argued, they rebelled. They, to quote Dylan Thomas here, they rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And, and that's what up. And students... Uh, take this interpretation and, oh, that makes perfect sense. You know, Indians can adjust. Well, the, st the reality is that Indians, uh, first peoples, have been adjusting for centuries to changing circumstances. But this is a very sedu seductive way of looking at the Northwest Rebellion when it's very, very complicated, very messy. Now, one of my favorite books of all time was Hugh Dempsey's biography of Big Bear, the powerful Cree chief. I think uh, the book fundamentally changed my view of the past, made me realize the scale of the injustice that had really occurred at that time. Now, I don't know if it's something that we as Canadians have come to terms with yet, but what's your view of Big Bear's role in the 1885 rebellion? Well, uh, let's step just uh, a few years before 1885. Big Bear is very astute. He's reluctant to sign Treaty 6 because, first of all, he believes that the treaty promises are not sufficient. And uh, like anybody else skeptical of government, he wants to see if the government will live up to its promises. But Big Bear is forced into treaty by 1882. Um, once he's within treaty, he tries to make sure that the Canadian government lives up to its treaty promises. And so when the rebellion breaks out in 1885, he counsels restraint. He doesn't want a violent solution. He believes in a diplomatic initiative. But unfortunately, he's pushed aside. And what happens in 1885 is that even though he counsels restraint, his is an isolated voice. And by the time the rebellion is put down by the Canadian government, and, and it goes back to that correspondence. The Canadian government uses the rebellion to create this image of a grand Indian Métis alliance, so it more or less undercuts what Big Bear has been trying to do. 
he's brought to trial, even though it's evident during his trial he did all he could to prevent bloodshed, he's still found guilty of treason felony, and he's sent to Stony Mountain Penitentiary uh, for two years. He's, uh, he's released early because he's ill, and he dies shortly thereafter. But here is a prominent Cree chief who understood the situation fully and uh, is unfortunately becomes uh, a victim of that Northwest Rebellion. And his diplomatic initiative uh, dies in the process. The um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was set up and reported uh, just a few years ago, was supposed to reveal the true history of the relationship between Euro-Canadian settlers and the Indigenous peoples of Canada. Now, we all know that it was also supposed to set the record straight and uh, hopefully give us a chance to to heal given these past injustices. Can you tell us how you think the history you have told us today is relevant to the recent Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Um, well, obviously I would say it's fundamentally relevant, but let's put it this way, Greg. I call the book, my most recent book that won the Governor General's Prize, A World We Have Lost. And I call it A World We Have Lost because as of 1905, Saskatchewan, in becoming a new province, turned its back on its past. It believed past history was irrelevant. And that's very hard for uh, an historian to say, but that's, that was Saskatchewan's attitude in 1905. Everything that came before it was irrelevant. What was important for Saskatchewan in 1905 was the future. Saskatchewan in 1905 wanted to be the, gra- uh, the granary for Canada. Uh, it was supposed to be an Anglo-Canadian society where the best features of British civilization would take root and flourish. So it turns its back on the pre-1905 history. And, and as a consequence, uh, indigenous peoples don't matter in Saskatchewan's history as of 1905. Well, the sad truth of the matter is that we need to know this history. If we're going to deal with some of the controversial topics of today or some of the challenges today, we need to understand what happened in the past and why. And by understanding what happened in the past and why we can be better informed to deal with the challenges that we face today with regard to native newcomer relations in this country. We need to bring an informed understanding to the table so we can engage in these debates, these issues intelligently. And this historical perspective is vitally important to this process of reconciliation. Yes, there needs to be truth. And yes, there needs to be reconciliation, and historical understanding is important to both aspects of that issue. Is there anything else in the exchange of correspondence between the Prime Minister and the Governor-General that still strikes you as peculiar or fascinating or relevant to today's circumstances? Um, what's quite striking about that correspondence between the Governor General MacDonald is the degree to which the Canadian government is prepared to manipulate the situation for its interests. Even though people like Lieutenant Governor Doody knew that the majority of the Indians had no interest in the rebellion, they deliberately portray them as rebels so they can then deal with Indian autonomy after 1885. 
After 1885, you've got the introduction of, of a number of coercive measures, for example, the pass system and other such Indian policies. And these policies are designed to crush Indian autonomy and they're designed, in essence, to make sure that Indians remain under the government's thumb. And so that's what MacDonald is up to in 1885 when he's saying that we made this rebellion appear more than it was. That's deliberate. It's manipulation. And we need to understand today that it was a, a case of the government manipulating, or in today's terminology, uh, you know, putting a twist on it uh, for their own benefit. And by sifting through this, we can see that Indians were prepared to stand by their treaty promises. They were, they were prepared to remain peaceful. And, uh, and in no way were they regarded as rebels. What happened after 1885, several bands were, were declared disloyal, disloyal, and they withheld their annuities for, for three years. And what's happening today is many of those bands are, are going to the courts and saying that the withholding of their annuity payments was a treaty violation. And by understanding what had happened uh, in terms of how the government manipulated this, you can understand why First Nations today still feel aggrieved about the rebellion and their treatment after 1885. Well, thank you so much, Bill. We really appreciate you joining us today. Perfect. Thank you. I want to remind our listeners this podcast and the letters on which this podcast are based are available on the Champlain Society website. Please visit us at www.champlainsociety.ca. This is the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Greg Marshallden. My guest was Bill Wazer. And this interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and Vince Piet. Thank you all. Thank you.